Hello and welcome to Coastal Connections, the road to the Isles. The podcast exploring the timelessly alluring appeal of the West Highlands of Scotland. I'm Neil Robertson, a travel writer and travel blogger living in Loch Aber. And I'm the producer, Freya. Neil and I have the enviable task of exploring this beautiful part of Scotland to find the stories and meet the people that you might not know about if you stick with the well-loved big hitters in the guidebooks. Yes, we want to inspire you to come here a bit more slowly, a bit more gently, to meet the locals, soak up that unique atmosphere and have some unforgettably good times. Today, we're all about the deep and ancient connections between the land, nature and culture. It's something that you can feel really quite strongly up here, and we've been learning how all of those things can work together to enrich our everyday lives. We began our journey for today's episode with a really beautiful coastal drive from Loch Eilert to Strontium. The weather was, let's say, dramatic, and the fresh sea air couldn't have taken me farther away from the worries of day-to-day life. Neil, could you explain the route for us? Well, I think the first thing to say is that there's there's water everywhere. You're, you're working your way through coastal peninsulas, so you're never far away from the Atlantic, first of all. But there's also inland lochs, waterfalls, and of course, more often than not up here, some extra water from the heavens. <laughs> the road is the A861, and it's a route that is largely single track. It's very rural, and it's considerably more, um, what's the word, uh, I suppose, adrift than the busier spots along the yes. motels itself. Yeah, definitely. The Highlands, it slows everything down anyway, but I think this is really next level stuff. It's raw and it's rugged with trees and closing the road on either side. Your, your relationship with wildlife is intense throughout. You've got eagles overhead, you've got deer hiding in the hedges. And just, I think, the winding nature of the road seems to lull you into this land and its story. But there's a danger, I think, of me breaking into poetry here. It's that evocative. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we landed in Strontian on the, the shore of Loch Sooner, and we do talk about Strontian more in episode two of this series, of course. But we're now firmly on dry land, and in time to meet our first guests. Just a few minutes from Strontian, you'll find Dara Croft, and it's farmed by Hugh and Sarah Asher. Like many crofters, Sarah and Hugh are multi-skilled, but they're doing things a bit differently at Darach. They combine traditional farming with crafting expertise, things like wool spinning, with years of professional experience in the realms of social care, recovery and community support. They know all about the therapeutic effects of spending time in nature and, like anyone who works in agriculture, they're no strangers to hard graft either. So we went to Darach Croft for a chat and a cuppa, but first... There's some work to be done. Any more jobs that you need to do or shall we? Just the goats. I've got one more bucket of feed, so I'll get the goats and I'll bring them out. Hi, we're Sarah and Hugh Asher and we live on Croft on the West Highland Peninsula near Strontian. and we run our croft as a social croft, which is a little bit like the Scottish equivalent of a a care farm. So we have animals and we use the land and the the surrounding woods and forests for the benefit of of improving people's health and well-being. Could you introduce your collection here? I can, so we've got um, 
we've got the pygmy goats and this first one here is little Mo and she came to live with us after she'd created chaos in Fort William. She uh, used to live well near Fort William but she jumped out of the field and went to visit all the kids in the school. Um, next is Daisy who's just a little sweetie and then we've got on the far side is Clover and that's Daisy's sister they came together and then the other two the grumpy granny who's uh, trying to get everybody's food that's Heather and the little one next well quite chunky one next to her is her grandson Hunter and they they're from Mull they lived on Mull they're funny but these are the goats that come for walks so if anybody any tourists come or any of the people who come to our social craft want to they can work with the goats, they can check their health and then they can take them for walks as well. Could you describe the walk? Is that like, do you, is the goat on a lead? How mm -hmm. does the walk work? Yeah, yeah, so goat walking. So we've got these five here. We've also got two goats that live further up the road. And if people want to come and walk, then we have maps of where we're allowed to walk. So we're registered and licensed to walk them. So we get folks to come along, they get, they get a goat each and they'll get a little bag of treats. We put them on the leads, so they've got a good, I don't know, it's about a metre and a half, two metre long uh, lead, a bit like a horse lead rope. And they walk, sometimes reluctantly, it can be more of a stroll than a walk, it can be more of a stop-start. And we walk through the Ariundel woods, which is the oak woods for just at the end of the road. Um, and around the village, we've, we, we can do road walks with them. You can see the... They're not keen on sharing the food just now. They're just so funny. They're just time wasters. That's all I call them because you can just re you suddenly realise you've been sat watching them and playing, and they trot around after you. And it's good for the soul, isn't it? Good for the soul. Yeah. And you've made a fascinating connection between mental health and social work and living on a working croft. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about that? So both of us have backgrounds in uh, supporting people with you know, what we might call additional needs. So learning disabilities, autism, poor mental health, drug and alcohol problems, offending behaviour, care experience. And so we, one of the things we've learnt really is that we, we've got a very rare balance of skills. Quite often you get people with... Uh, supportive backgrounds who want to get into care farming or social crofting but they lack the the agricultural skills and then sometimes you get people who are very experienced farmers and want to you know, share or diversify but but lack the, the the social support skills so we are fairly unique in that kind of respect and down in Lancashire when an, it was before I qualified in social work I'd worked in health and social care in the third sector in charities for a long while and I used to manage a care farm there so I had a 200 acre farm that we working farms so we ran a flock of sheep we ran herd of cows we had pigs fattening we had everything as a farm but we supported people with their additional needs and who were for some reason excluded from society so that that was cracking that was a brilliant place 
just the shift in social care and social care funding meant that I was seeing people who had been really well supported in their choices in life starting to lose some of their choices, starting to disappear because the funding was disappearing as money's not, sadly doesn't grow on trees and it, it, it moved on to another group of uh, people and so I was, I became a bit of an ardent, I'm going to fight the corner and so I went and did my social work training and my learning disability nursing training as a dual registrant and so then drifted out of my third sector world of loveliness and freedom and flexibility into the world of statutory support and care. At the same time I think Hugh was working for a charity supporting people with offending behaviour history who also had learning disabilities and so again it all just starts to tie in throughout all of this we were running our own flock of sheep and so yeah it just seems natural to me that the well-being I do it for my own well-being I've worked in super stressful jobs so the transition through to finding well-being on a social craft or a craft just is natural it just makes sense to me health and particularly mental health support around here shares a lot of the characteristics that you often find in remote and rural areas so in a way we were hoping to provide something that that was a bit different and a a bit unique so one of the really important things in terms of using animals is that a lot of the people who come and visit us on the social croft only really have experience of being looked after of being supported and very little experience of being the one doing the looking after and the supporting so it can be massively re- rewarding to come and look after uh, an, another living being for the people who have the additional needs to come in here it's not asking anything of them it's this is their space and their time to be maybe somebody goes to services maybe somebody goes to the doctors maybe somebody goes to the social worker and they get asked directly to tell them all about every issue that they've ever had and it can be really personal really intimate well here we like you've you've sort of coined the phrase of leave your diagnosis at the door so for the people who come we we all we need to know is if there's anything that we really need to know sort of risk wise other than that we don't need to know why they're here other than they want to find some connection with nature and connection with the animals so i guess yeah that's for the people but with regards to tourists and visitors coming to the area they get the same benefits from activities so they can come and meet the animals if they say they've traveled up from the central belt or further afield they may never never have been in a really muddy field surrounded by really overly friendly sheep that want to come and headbutt the legs so it's lovely that they can come and get connected and really start to see and they can talk to us and talk to the the other with two young people work on the croft as well during the week and find out what do these sheep need and how and it starts to build that connection back with nature um, and with animals during lockdown i started reading more about uh, a practice that originates in japan called forest bathing which is really about walking slowly and mindfully predominantly in in forested or, or wooded areas taking in your your environment with through all your five senses. The bathing bit is is about immersing yourself in the natural environment. 
So in some ways it, it's the antithesis of, of a lot of outdoor activities in that you know we're not aiming to get to the top of Ben Nevis or, or bag three Munros in a, in a weekend or we're not even really trying to get all the way around the lake or, or to the, the, the end of the path. The goal really is, is a state of mind and, and relaxing. So it's about moving very slowly, uh, taking in what's going on around you. If you can slow down to fully stopped, it can be wonderful because it, it really doesn't take very long for, for the wildlife that's been disturbed by you being there and you, you, you're moving to get used to you and come back again. So we, we see this as, a, as a, an important nature connection practice in terms of having mental and, and physical health benefits. But the other really important thing is that there's evidence that the more connected people become with nature, the more they become aware of our impact on nature and hopefully see it less as, as a resource for exploitation and more as a resource for health and well-being. So for me, I think one of the really important things about promoting nature connection is to combat the kind of tourism, you know, like wild camping where people come and, you know, leave their tents, leave their rubbish, leave a mess. The idea is that you can come somewhere beautiful like this, you can appreciate it, but then, so as the saying goes, you can take only photographs and leave only footprints. So I, I, I'm very keen to, to encourage this kind of ecotourism, whereby the tourism benefits the, the tourists, it benefits the local economy, it benefits the local people, but it's not done at the expense of, of the environment. One of the things I've always been a bit embarrassed of is ever being classed as like a hippie good lifer, which there's nothing wrong with hippie good lifers, but my background is agriculture, it is teaching farming, it's not teaching how to look at animals and say how pretty they are, it is getting in with the field, moving the cows from one place to another, checking them, the, their health and well-being. So it's about husbandry. It's about knowing the animals and knowing what you're doing, really, to keep them, to keep anything well on a hill in the weather that we have is a task in itself. Going feeding, you do most of the feeding on the hill, don't you, Huey? And some of the days when the wind's blowing so hard that you can't open the door, and you're trying to get hay across a field, and you're knee deep, you've lost both your wellies in the bog. Um, and the haze blowing in your face, it can challenge how much you're enjoying it, you know? You can enjoy the sunny days and the days when the rain's stopped and the birds are singing, that's beautiful. The other days when you realise that you've spent more money on animal feed than you have probably on the feed for ourselves is uh, <laughs> less good. You've really got to love what you do to keep doing it. <laughs> That was such an incredible eye-opener. So wonderful to see the passion and the care that was into this concept of a social croft and to see how nature and animals in particular fit into that. Yeah, it was really wonderful. And, you know, they work so hard. I was tired just talking to them. But those pygmy goats, they absolutely cracked me up. I can see why Sarah calls them the little gang of anarchists. And I had to laugh when she told us that even the most reluctant of teenage boys is powerless to resist them. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's that fusion of, of crofting and mental health that makes total sense when you see what they're doing. And it's, it's easy to forget, I think, that um, sometimes you just need to stop and be present. And I love Hugh's description of the aim being to, to reach a standstill and let the wildlife come to you. It certainly makes me think differently about the, the more goal-driven aspects of the way that we spend our downtime. We're really far removed from experiences like these now. There's just a lot to reflect on here. Yeah, well said. I think that doing nothing well is a really excellent ambition. If you'd like to walk a goat, bathe in the forest, that's fully clothed by the way, or find out more about the inaugural tree-hugging championships which were held at Darach this year, take a look at darachcroft.com. That's D-A-R-A-C-H. Sarah and Hugh are fully registered and qualified in everything they do, so whether you just want to experience crofting life for an afternoon or explore a different kind of supportive environment, do check them out. And thanks so much to them both for a really inspiring and also very fun visit. Yes, indeed. And now, on to our next destination. Follow the road that runs along the north side of Loch Stunart from Strontian and you'll find another family working together with the land and with culture. Brothers Andrew and Rory Sinclair run the family-owned Recipole Farm. But if you've been on holiday in the area, there's a good chance you know about the really beautiful holiday park with its self-catering lodges that they also run. And if you're into your culture, then you should definitely know about Recipole Studios, a 200-year-old stone buyer lovingly converted into an intimate and thriving art space. The studio spaces display a rich variety of paintings, sculpture, prints and ceramics made by artists from all over the world. It's a serene, contemporary space with everything from bold, abstract works to very figurative paintings. And in almost all of them, the presence of the Scottish landscape, light and people spring from the walls. The studios are also regularly brought to life with live music and song, and that's a big part of keeping the Gaelic culture alive. Curator and artist Andrew Sinclair gave us a tour of his gallery. But first, Freya, how about a tune from Rory and his wife, Karen? Great idea. I'm Andrew. Welcome to the gallery. Andrew, All right, nice yeah. to meet you. Come on in. Meet my brother. This is Rory. Uh, Freya, Neil. Hi. Uh, how, how you doing? How you doing? Uh, nice to meet you. 
Yeah, yeah. what a stunning venue. Beautiful this is, uh, building. Tell us about it. I will do. This is Reswell Studios, all right? So, and Fine Art Gallery. We've got four exhibition spaces now. It's about a 200 year old building originally, uh, stone built, and um, about, where are we now? Oh my goodness, 18 years ago, I stripped it right back to uh, the stone walls and repurposed it into this multifaceted art space. I'm really curious about this building as well. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to construct anything in the Highlands. I've, I've learned this from sure. personal experience. But the amount of detail that's gone into this construction is phenomenal. Well, thanks very much, Neil. Well, the, one of the important aspects I had when I was renovating the building was to retain character of the, the initial 200-year-old building. These, what you think might be arrow uh, windows for shooting arrows out of, they're actually air vents, okay? Because uh, there used to be, um, before my time, um, a floor running right the way through from one end of the gable end to the other, and doors, and it was basically for processing feeding for on the farm, you know, uh, whether it be hay, whether it be oats, there was an old, old bruiser and such in here. So I think you've got that initial uh, character of the building. And that's what I kind of worked. I didn't really change that too much, to be honest. I just went, all right, what is the footprint we've got here? How can that work into, into an, art, an art space? You know? And I'm an artist myself, so that's my passion. I came, went off, went off to college, and then came back and um, saw the potential in this building to, to make it into, uh, to attract to art lovers, but also for, as a facility for artists to, to work in. And uh, this part of the world is your you know, I'm sure you've seen, is particularly inspirational to visual artists, you know. Yes. And we're coming through here and have a look. Yeah. And um, so this is one of my paintings. This is the view from when I was actually uh, up on the hill uh, over the back there. And I'm looking down towards, this is Ben Recipe. For me, the inspiration is, is light and light and contrasts, uh, whether it be in landscape, whether it be you know, a single white rose, whether it be uh, uh, still life. You know? so that's, um, that's what inspires me. Very traditional painting, um, using oils, and um, yeah, that's... Uh, yes, it is beautiful. And there's something about this part of the world that just inspires creatives, and I, th I think the creative in anyone. For sure, know. for sure. What is it about the... The atmosphere. It's ever changing, I think, to be honest. You know, it can be snowing, raining, sunshine, you know, all in one hour, let alone one day, you know. And that's what makes it particularly a um, special place as well, I think. Yeah. There's a dynamism to it, yes. Okay. Yes. Lovely, beautiful. Um, so we show about 50 different artists here, and uh, there's generally some sort of link to the West Coast, right? And it, it's interesting to, sh to look at each specific artist and and their unique approach, you know, and technique. But it, we change the exhibitions every six weeks or so. Uh, having the four exhibition spaces really allows us to show such a, an incredible contrast of different styles, you know? Yeah. And I think it makes it a really interesting visitor experience, which, you know, is all year round. The business is all year round. As well as the fiddle tunes that Rory and Karen played for us and Andrew's tour of the artworks, we were very lucky that a young musician who is growing up steeped in Gaelic culture was also at the studios that day and he agreed to sing for us. So I'll hand you over to Alistair to introduce himself and his song. Well, well um, I'm Alistair and, well, I go to school so I don't do much apart from school. Um, well, this is a Gaelic song. It's a wailing song about person who's wailing down in South Georgia in the South Atlantic and how he says that he doesn't like it at all and he'd rather be home in Scotland. Stürch nach der Gericht mit Chirme Chief. 
Strych nach do gewich mi cheva me chief, nivene hakem nach ma wiche mi. Strych nach do gewich mi cheva me chief, wim faben gratil me schecholig. Wene meik wabe wi galen se chuan, mo vjovene voige janjen wi kui. Bjal bin kjaste ve wachke ve chlui, da wi djivigen kraun an sauf djodje. Djile von trechstugen aske gonurk, tötin gas galke chle frasvol gas durg. Und der geht am Pautjes gendäuer gewürt, schäsch ihr losgetoll auch nicht vorkötsch. Nö, jef schien vorlöks, nö, wicke schien trei, falle wie ein Nuschach, se kohle wie kag. Chosk mi, je, jef geht der Könnte verwarf, ich ha nich, ich trite in Noste. Stürch nach der Gewicht, mi, je, wo me tschief, Nivene hakem nach ma wiche mi, Stürg nach do gewich mi tschewe me tschief, Wim waben gratschil me schecholig. Thank you, Arthur, that was absolutely lovely. Have you always been a, a Gaelic speaker? Well, um, Gaelic has been my first uh, language, and it's the only language I spoke really until I was about until I entered P4, where I went into the English class. But up until that point, it was just Gaelic 24-7, pretty much. A wee bit of English here and there. Yeah. I think one of the big things that draws people to this part of the world is, is Gaelic. So is there ways for visitors to engage with this when they come? If you're around for long enough, you might be able to pick up um, several words, such as um, hello, thank you, chivi, which is goodbye. I would say maybe three most important words in coming here would be tapalave, which is thank you, kiashmaha, which is okay then, and haifluch, um, which is it's wet. <laughs> Practical advice. And can I ask you, Rory, about your experience with Gaelic? Because I understand you, you didn't start with it in the home, so how did you find your way into this language? Well, I guess it started a long time ago because we did have uh, Gaelic at school, at primary school. There was a teacher that was travelling around the, the schools and uh, once a week we had a Gaelic class. So I guess it was, it was in there a little bit with that. Um, but it was really when I went abroad, uh, I was living in Australia for a while, and it was really there that my interest was piqued by uh, learning a language that was from, from, from here, from the West Coast, where, from where I'm from. And now getting into the, the, the singing as well a little bit, which is really great. I wish I started with that because, you know, it really kind of opened your eyes a little bit more to how people were living in especially this area. There's, I mean, there's a lot of songs, there's a lot of stories from all the different Gaelic areas. That really, it opens the door to a whole new world that is not presented to you if you're only an English speaker. You know? I think a lot of people would feel a powerful attachment to it, so that's really encouraging that mm. you could pick it up later in life. Do you have any tips for someone who's just getting started and making tentative steps to what is a difficult language to learn? The tip that I would give is come into the area and sit down, come to one of the sessions and you'll hear some songs and 
If you're lucky, you might hear some people speaking Gaelic. That's sit down and listen to them, talk to them. People are generally are, are very, very open and they're welcoming people to to invest in the language because it's there's not a lot of people that speak it and we need to have young people learning it and to, to keep it alive. So we're in this very, very cosy, intimate, welcoming space and as tempting as it is to stay here a bit longer, I believe there's more to see around here. Well, there's lots more to see, Neil. Yeah, and um, thanks very much for coming in here. But the, the, the weather's just cleared up nicely now, so it's a good opportunity for Rory to take you a wander around uh, the park and show you some of, uh, some of the developments that have happened over the years. Excellent, let's do that. So we're stepping out of the Vesipol Gallery and this is just a little bit different here. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the... This is part of the farm then. So here at Recipal Farm, it's mainly cattle that we've got here. With my grandfather when he came here after the war. It was a cattle farm there and he took it on, he was a tenant then. And we're continuing that now. So what we're trying to do with the cattle is to encourage new growth to come from the, from the like oaks and all the native kind of broad leaves to bring them to the fore and reduce some of the non-native species, things like, like the bracken and stuff, which, which kind of just, chokes everything out and things like roddies, uh, rhododendrons, trying to control the numbers of those. Hard work and uh, very much a working farm then, mm. but you also have a campsite as well. Yes, we have a, we have a campsite and uh, we have also privately owned holiday homes. The, the campsite was back in the 60s. What were just coming up here and they were just looking for someone to pitch their tent. Mm -hmm. And eventually there was enough of them and grandfather just sort of said, well, hang on a minute, maybe there's something, something mm. that we can do with this. It's a of lifetime here and that's that's what attracts me to recipe is that it's it's a lifestyle it's a it's a way of life it's not a job it's a it's something more than that i think that we're very lucky to have that here because I, I think there's a there's a lot of people that would like to have that kind of life recipe's a an interesting word where does that come from well it's a it's a norse name so it's it's when the vikings were here in the area it's an interesting looking into where it actually what it actually means there's a number of different theories and nobody seems to really know exactly what it means. But it's made up of two parts and one part, the end bit, Paul, is the name for a, a kind of farmstead in Old Norse. And the first section of the name could mean something like brushwood or maybe something to do with horses. So I think it's a place that has been lived at, people have lived here for, for a very long time. And it's obviously, it's a very fertile area right on the, right on the loch side which is quite unique in, in Loch Sunart. There's not many places like this. So you could imagine that when the Vikings came up the loch here in their longships, that they would sort of see this and sort of go, oh, there we go, that'll do us. And uh, get rid of the natives and we'll stay here for a bit. And uh, there we are. So there's a lot of history here. And I guess that's, that's it's part of something that I, I'm quite keen to to keep that going and keep, keep those sort of stories and memories um, alive and uh, make sure that when people come and visit us that they that they know about these sort of things. And I think that's part, adds to the experience of coming to, to, the, to the area. Hmm. And it's a great balance between the historic and contemporary at Recipal. There's a real energy there. Did you feel it too, Neil? Oh, for sure. I, I think something that really comes across with everyone that we've met in this series is just how versatile and willing to just get stuck in. And that, that's, that's the nature of, of life in the Highlands. And... Part of that is necessity, 
But I think a lot of folk here really enjoy having multiple jobs too. And of course, tourism is is um, integrated in all of that. It weaves its way into prominence in those jobs and it's never far away. And community and social cohesion is also a really big feature too. In recent years, Andrew and Rory have run a fiddle festival and a hill race on Ben Recipol, the 827-metre Corbett on their farmland. And if you want to give yourself a challenge, take a look online at the times that some of those people were running that route because it is astounding. So these guys like to have a good time as well as keeping themselves busy. And I think that's one of the best ways of tending to both your culture and the natural world. Very true. And whether you want to be alone in the wilderness or to integrate into local social culture up here, you'll find it pretty easy to do both. Recipal Studios is open all year round, so if the weather's not good enough to enjoy the great outdoors, you can let the art on display transport you. If you're visiting in winter, it is worth calling ahead, but you'll always get a warm welcome from Andrew. All the details, including images of the art, information about the artists and international shipping is at recipalstudios.co.uk. So you can enjoy some art wherever you are. And if you'd like to make it a longer visit, take a look at the accommodation options at recipal.co.uk and enjoy some of those spectacular views over Loch Sunart for yourself. Thank you so much to Andrew and Rory for hosting us and to Karen Sinclair and Alistair for the beautiful music. Thanks for listening to Coastal Connections, the road to the Isles. For more information about this area in particular, visit westhelmpeninsulas.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, we'd really appreciate it if you could like, subscribe and share it with your friends. We'll be wrapping up this series with a final episode stopping in Malig, so I hope you'll join Neil and I for that. Bye for now. Slanja. Coastal Connections, the road to the Isles is produced by Freya Hellier. Many thanks also to Les Back for the additional music and to the podcast sponsor, Highlands and Islands Enterprise. Mm-hmm.